Now, if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We begin in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 21. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Never have any other God. Never make your own carved idols or statues that represent any creature in the sky, on the earth, or in the water. Never worship them or serve them, because I, the Lord your God, am a God who does not tolerate rivals. I punish children for their parents' sins to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But I show mercy to thousands of generations of those who love me and obey my commandments. Never use the name of the Lord your God carelessly. The Lord will make sure that anyone who carelessly uses his name will be punished. Remember the day of rest by observing it as a holy day. You have six days to do all your work. The seventh day is a day of rest, a holy day dedicated to the Lord your God. You, your sons, your daughters, your male and female slaves, your cattle and the foreigners living in your city must never do any work on that day. In six days, the Lord made heaven, earth, and the sea, along with everything in them. He didn't work on the seventh day. That's why the Lord blessed the day. He stopped his work and set this day apart as holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live for a long time in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Never murder. Never commit adultery. Never steal. Never lie when you testify about your neighbor. Never desire to take your neighbor's household away from him. Never desire to take your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox, his donkey, or anything else that belongs to him. All the people heard the thunder and saw the lightning. They heard the blast of the ram's horn and saw the mountain covered with smoke. So they shook with fear and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us or we'll die. Moses answered the people, don't be afraid. God has come only to test you so that you will be in awe of him and won't sin. The people kept their distance while Moses went closer to the dark cloud where God was. Now we turn to Matthew chapter 26. Verses 57 to 68. And this is following the arrest of Jesus in the garden. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the chief priest, where the experts in Moses' teachings and the leaders had gathered together. Peter followed at a distance until he came to the chief priest's courtyard. He went inside and sat with the guards to see how this would turn out. The chief priests and the whole council were searching for false testimony to use against Jesus in order to execute him, but they did not find any, although many came forward with false testimony. At last, two men came forward. They stated, this man said, I can tear down God's temple and rebuild it in three days. The chief priest stood up and said to Jesus, don't you have any answer to what these men testify against you? But Jesus was silent. Then the chief priest said to him, Swear an oath in front of the living God and tell us, Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Jesus answered him, Yes, I am. But I alone can guarantee that from now on you will see the Son of Man in the honored position, 
the one next to God the Father on the heavenly throne. He will be coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the chief priest tore his robes in horror and said, He has dishonored God. Why do we need any more witnesses? You've just heard him dishonor God. What's your verdict? They answered, He deserves the death penalty. Then they spit on his face, hit him with their fists, and some of them slapped him. They said, You, Christ, if you're a prophet, tell us who hit you. Maybe seated. Vance, thank you very much for your leadership in our church. We give thanks for you and Linda and your family. Thank you for that. So we've now been in the Decalogue. So we know that's uh, these by the Ten Commandments, but the Decalogue, ten words. And we've come to our final week, having covered uh, coveting and stealing last week. And what I thought I'd do, you know, we live in a time where people say, I, I don't really know if Christians, those who follow the Bible, are they really that different? Uh, how easily we can blend in with the world, just plow through. Is there really something distinctive about being those who are under the authority of God? And what I thought, and I, I think a good exercise for all of you this week, if you have your, your Bibles open there to Exodus 20, the, the Ten Commandments, try putting them in the positive. Uh, so something like this. Listen to what we get. We are those who worship the one true God. We worship the one true God correctly. We speak accurately about God and live our lives in line with our profession. We set aside time every week to rest in God's completed work. We honor our parents, obeying them when we're young and caring for them and speaking kindly to them and respecting them as we age. We value all human life as sacred we respect marriage and the family unit. We are givers and not takers. We speak well of others. We cheerfully steward what God has entrusted to us. I ask you, you know, you came into this perhaps and you think, oh boy, you know, here we got laws. A lot of people say, what's the purpose? You know, law God's just mean and he gives us the law book to follow and if we do it good enough, then we'll please him. Say, no, what we've said is that God in his kindness has rescued his people and then out of his grace has given us his law that he might shape us. Now, I don't know about you, but you put those commandments in the positive and you get a pretty attractive picture. Say, we actually allowed God to work in us to this end, I think we'd say, well, we'd be better colleagues, better friends, better spouses, better parishioners. Say, if God could go to work on us and we'd really be this people, what a light it would be. You know, a few weeks ago, talking about the family, uh, it comes up, you know, even in our membership covenant, some of us are thinking, have young families. We'd like a mission for the family. Uh, something as guardrails is to say, what are we doing in this home? You say, try putting in your own words, put the Ten Commandments in the positive. You say, wouldn't that be a great family mission? Listen again, we're those who worship the one true God. We worship the one true God correctly. We speak accurately about God and live in line with our profession. We set aside time each week to rest in God's completed work. We honor our parents, obeying them when we're young and caring for them and respecting them and speaking kindly to them as we age. We value all human life as sacred. We respect marriage and the family unit. We're givers and not takers. We speak well of others, and we cheerfully steward all that God has entrusted to us.
So it's quite an image for God's people. Not like, I think, the other ways of doing life, but real boundaries and real shaping. And that's why God's law is actually an act of his grace. You say, you don't think that coming. You say, I don't think of laws as a grace, but hopefully the last 10 weeks, and we'll do more of this in Exodus, but we can see that as God speaks and he shapes us, it's an act of his kindness to give us these guardrails to shape us and ultimately to allow his people to flourish. So today uh, we will focus in on that ninth commandment, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And as we have in previous weeks, let's kind of take a, you know, zoom out and let's look at the big picture. And I think stated right there, the first bold heading, here's what we've, we've really got to get today. God's people value the truth. That if we are those who profess belief in this God and are under the authority of his word, that truth is really important. You can think about just a thing we, we don't tend to think about, but think how risky it is to anchor all these things in real events in real places. You know, at the, the seminary, I teach a class called Biblical Backgrounds, and it's all about the stuff outside the Bible that talks about stuff in the Bible. And I'm, I'm constantly um, amazed at just how risky it is to name all these kings and places and the botany and the trees, and you say, well, if any of that's a little off, it's gonna discredit things, and yet time and again, the people and the places and the geography all line up, the true events. Maybe you've not spent much time reading other religious books. Say, other religious books aren't bad. They're actually good ethical codes. They say, do this and don't do this and do more of this and less of this and do this behavior and not that behavior. It's like some, some really good stuff in there. But it doesn't make the risky move of saying God has acted in history, in true events, through real people, in this time, in this place, and this is God's word. We believe in a true faith in the sense that it happened in history, and what a week to be thinking about that, Palm Sunday and the Easter events. You say you, you begin to dislodge those people or those places, you say that would be uh, very bad indeed, but that has not happened, and in fact, I think with more and more findings, points more towards the authenticity of our, our faith. And so we, we are one, our faith is grounded in real events. Also true, true speech. We'll spend more time on this. Say, again, against the background of other world literature, you, you know, again, you read something like the Epic of Gilgamesh, there's all these other gods. This is the Israelites are in this culture. Say, the gods in that tradition are, are always deceiving each other, that they're deceiving the humans because they're too loud and too annoying, and they're, they're picking fights with other gods, and duplicity is actually a badge of honor, that if you can be more deceiving than the next god, uh, this is a good thing. Say, how very different from, from our Bible that we don't get very far, something like Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie. Or Psalm 119, God hates every false way. Jesus says, I am the truth. Last night I was reading John chapter 18, that great exchange between Jesus and Pilate. For this purpose, Jesus said, I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. It's all throughout the Bible. To be under God and to be a follower of him is to value the truth, true events and true speech, and quite frankly, true living. That duplicity is not something that we hold in high regard, just the opposite. And you think the adversary, Satan, 
the one who hates Jesus, who pulls people away from Jesus, is the last thing you need is the Galilean carpenter. Go do your own thing. So that's Satan. That's what he's most successful at doing. He's got a name, right? He's got a, another name in the Bible. He's the father of lies. That our chief adversary would be known as a liar. But God is truthful. And in his kindness has anchored our tradition in the truth. So you say, yes, truth for us is a high priority. Now, why is this so hard? Where's, where's the rub? Is there's always a rub. A few things I'd like to talk about here, and at the risk, I don't want to be too academic, but I try to do a little bit of the, the origin as to how we find ourselves where we do. The first is our, the nature of our political discourse. And this is made, I think, most explicit in the Western tradition. In a little book called The Prince by a man named Niccolo Machiavelli 500 years ago, you probably read it sometime. You know, if you get up Norton Anthology of World Literature, Machiavelli's going to be in there. And Machiavelli, the reason why this sticks, Machiavelli says what all of us are thinking and what all of us learn at a young age is true. That if I lie, I can manipulate people and get my way. So he's talking about leadership and rather scary. He says, you don't want to let the people know that you're a liar, but if you need to lie to, to get your way, that's okay. It's the old debate of, you know, does my end justify the means? In other words, this is my cause, and I believe it's a good cause. Of course, we all believe our causes are good. And if it requires me lying and uh, manipulating people to get there, then it's fine. You're saying, well, I don't know, Machiavelli, 1532. I mean, really? But tonight you'll be sitting back, maybe after the Masters, right? And after the Masters, you watch. And you're going to see a lot of stuff about strong leaders in the world using propaganda and using language in such a way, right? Say, well, this is my goal. And if that's my goal, I can kind of uh, conjure things in such a way, no matter the cost, to accomplish my cause. And so in our political discourse, our political discourse, as much as it frustrates us, actually encapsulates something we learn as very small children, that I can make up things and I can smooth things off and lie and pervert the truth to such a way that it's a disadvantage to you, an advantage to me. And on our fallen nature, say that's a very tempting thing indeed. So Machiavelli encapsulating something that's deep within our hearts. If I lie, um, it can be advantageous. Secondly, and I risk here again, I don't want to be up, uh, you know, kind of out, out, out in the field, so to speak, but think about what's happened in the university and how what is taught in the university trickles its way down to the popular level. So we call this postmodernism, which now we're emerging out of that, but what has happened is uh, somewhere along the line, we've come to believe that there are as many truths as there are perceivers. So what's true for you is not true for me. And you can have your truth, and I can have my... And if you really think about that, it doesn't make any sense at all. But how did we get there? Always the motivations to these movements do make a lot of sense. The early part of the 20th century, we had two world wars and the Bolshevik Revolution. Say, these were very nasty, bloody affairs. And you had a bunch of modern people at the time say, we're sophisticated, we've advanced, you know, we had the scientific revolution and the enlightenment, and, and if we now can uh, establish uh, political economies in such a way where everybody's going to flourish and triumph, and what happened was an absolute bloodbath. And so in the mid part of the 20th century, what was viewed as the enemy, the cause of that, was truth. 
Is it, well, the communists are insisting on their truth and Hitler's insisting on his truth. And if everybody's really insisting on, you know, that there's one absolute truth, all we have is bloodbaths. And so what they did, right, what the, the academicians and the deconstructionists did, says, let's pretend, well, there is no such thing as truth, only insofar as you as the individual in your context affirm it to be the truth. So truth shifts around based on your circumstances, your experience, your context, and so you end up with as many truths as there are perceivers. The man I know who talked most intelligently about this was a man named Alan Bloom in a, in a book in the 80s called The Closing of the American Mind. And at the end of that book, Bloom says this. He says, you gotta be guaranteed of one thing. Every single undergraduate student in America is going to be taught that truth is relative. And you fast forward now, particularly in the last decade, what's happened to every one of those young minds? No such thing as truth. There are as many truths as there are perceivers. Well, you know what they've done? They've grown up to be journalists and politicians. And now what's everybody saying? You gotta tell the truth. I remember some, some years ago, <laughs> uh, five years ago, even Chipotle, I mean, I remember they're advertising their new queso, and the, the slogan was, this is not fake news. Um, that we've all come back around to say, maybe getting rid of truth, you know, maybe saying, well, anything goes, isn't the right way to go. And when people actually behave in accordance with what they're taught, it's a very scary and nasty world. So the political discourse, the academic erosion and relative Relativism, relativizing of truth, say all this are cultural currents working against us to say, well, we, we are people who, who believe in real truth embodied in the person of Jesus. The third category of why this is hard is what I would call the, 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 the rare exceptions uh, rebuttal. You Christians, you, you think you believe in the truth, but what, what it would happen if you were Corey Ten Boom and, and you had the Jewish people down in your cellar? Would you lie to the Nazis? Yeah, I bet you'd lie to the Nazis. See there, you really don't believe in absolute truth. And what I would say to that um, is anytime there's an ethical question, and we've talked a lot about this on Sundays, tough ethical questions are never between an obviously good choice and an obviously bad choice. So those are easy choices. But occasionally, rarely, in rare exceptions, we have two Christian goods that line up against each other. We're to love our neighbor. We believe all life is sacred, that life's really important. We're also to tell the truth. In rare instances, like hiding Jewish people in the 1940s, those two do seem to lock. But in that instance, say in my own, you say I think it's the right thing to do to protect human life because you're, you're valuing two goods that are clearly taught in Scripture. So the rare exceptions are precisely that. You don't have exceptions that therefore make the rule, but they're exceptions because there is a rule. Or a bit more playfully, but I think, you know, your spouse asks you, how do I look in this outfit? Uh, it's easier in the last service when you weren't here to talk about this, but, you know. It's like, just easy to... Another thing to keep in mind with this, there's a big difference. Say, write this down, talk about this with your family. There's a difference between openness and honesty. We as Christians are always to be honest. We don't always have to be open. Say, I trust all of, right? all of you, we come, we talk about things. Some of it's confidential. It's about our, our specific relationship. It's about friendship or something. It doesn't mean, well, because I know something that I go and say it to everybody else. Say, that's not violating honesty. That's just using discretion. 
So you can be honest and truthful without being completely open. So some perspectives there on why it's so hard. Why is it so hard? Because we learned at a young age what Machiavelli said, I can push people around if I lie. Secondly, it's been rammed down our throats that there's no such thing as truth for a very long time. And thirdly, people come up with exceptions where maybe you, know, you do have dilemmas, but they're rare. And let's face it, folks, this is an area just like all these where God's word, it's coming back around to show us that it's always been right. Does anything in our culture work without trust? You're gonna go to the restaurant, maybe some of you after the service today, you're gonna order something and it says that it's this and it's this kind of product and it's farm to table. You say, well, you're, you're kind of banking on the person who wrote that and the people who work there, we're banking on them telling the truth. All the technology that we use, you know, in our vehicles now, that, that all that stuff's gonna function well. Well, well why, why do I do? Well, I, I'm trusting the people to have done what they said they were gonna do, friendship. Does friendship work without trust? How about in the workplace? How, how often now we talk about toxic work environments? What's the problem in a toxic work environment is that it feels more like a game of survivor where people don't trust each other than saying it's a real community where we're relying on each other due to our job. Uh, travel, I mean, anything you really think about is dependent upon truthful utterances. Thank goodness that it might not seem, but it is the case that God has always, always told his people to be on the side of truth. You drive at the truth, and in the long run, you might be accused in a time of being insistent or approximated to tyrants of the early 20th century, whatever it might be, but if we say, no, we're people of truth, and in Jesus is the truth, it's an absolute truth. In the end, that's a real anchor, and quite frankly, I think real attractive in the times in which we live. So God's people, we value truth. Duplicity gets us in trouble. May we be on that side. Now, if you look at verse 16, it's not, it doesn't just say don't lie. It's a little more specific than that. It says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It takes us to the courtroom. But I think I put it this way. God's people shouldn't use words to harm others. That's the ninth commandment. Let's not use our discourse to bring others down. And this would include things certainly like perjury. That's the most obvious, you know, with laws against perjury. But I think even at a more granular level, you have things like slander and gossip and exaggeration and flattery. Say all these instances that I can use to just, you know, kind of push people around. All that, God says, don't use your words to bring others down. I think, well, why then? Why are we tempted to bring others down with words? There's a real temptation in my heart. I just, you know, kind of this week thinking through, well, when I, when I bring somebody else down, why am I doing that? So firstly, and, and incorrectly, but part of our fallen nature is that I think that if I can talk bad about somebody else, that in the eyes of others, that will make me look good. And I find this the case that it's, it's not as much a temptation with those who aren't in my area or arena or in my profession, but rather those who, you know, might be encroaching upon my turf or in my job, say, if I can just, you know, show, expose that chink in their armor to say, you know, they're really not a great guy, or do you see the way that their life is and say, oh, what a mess they are, or how they botched this job, or whatever it is, that when I do stuff like that, am I really saying what, I, my, what, what my goal is here is to make myself look better to these people? And friends... That's an act of the flesh, right? That's a selfish action, and quite frankly, it doesn't work. That when we tear others down with the motivation to make ourselves look good, 
Most people can see through that. But I think it's a real temptation. It's a false temptation of the flesh that if I can bear false witness and slander somebody, maybe, just maybe, I'd be held in higher estimation. Say, may God, in his grace, relieve us of that. Secondly, so it makes us feel better. Secondly, good old-fashioned people-pleasing. You know, I, they once did a study about how many of us are okay with conflict. It's actually a small amount of people. You know, 10 to 15% really don't, aren't bothered by conflict. I think those people have a good advantage in life, really. They can lock horns with people. They don't feel stressed about it. So that's an advantage in life. But most of us, 85% of us, say we don't, it's best to avoid conflict. And one really good way to avoid conflict is what? To not tell the truth. <laughs> Uh, to cover up the truth, round off the corners, to not say the things that need to be said. <laughs> Reminds me of the, you know, the Groucho Marx, the old comedian. He said, you know, these are my principles, and if you don't like them, I have others. <laughs> um, I think Paul was exactly correct when he said, you can't be a God-pleaser and a man-pleaser. But I gotta tell you, I like being a people-pleaser. And sometimes I know what needs to be said, but I avoid it because I want to be liked. Is that true for you? What would God say about that? So we lie because we slander people because we think it'll make us look better. We lie to please other people. And thirdly, I think we lie out of fear. I'm just afraid to say the truth. You see this with the kind of whistleblowing discourse. Is like, my goodness, everybody in the room knows what's going on here, but I'm too afraid to speak because then I'll be in trouble. Say, all oh, real temptations about curbing the truth. And say, may God's people be those of singularity. Say, I don't want to bring others down to raise my estimation in the eyes of others. I don't just want to be a man pleaser, and I certainly don't want to act out of fear, so what hope do I have? And here's where I want to turn. It is Palm Sunday. Did you catch the second reading today? It happens during the Passion Week, so this week, Thursday. And the scene there in Matthew 26 is the, the trial the Jews are having for Jesus. And so in the notes, Matthew 26, verses 3 and 4, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in a palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. Now listen to how it goes on. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, that is, no charges that would stick, though many false witnesses came forward. You see the irony of this section. The chief priests and the elders, those who knew this law, I mean, they, they could have in their sleep. You say, you ask one of these guys, you know, tell us about Exodus 20. I mean, out it would have come. Like, just, so they knew the ninth commandment. And yet when it came down to it, being threatened by Jesus, just don't like Jesus, the attention that he's getting, what do they do? They look for false witnesses. And against that, the backdrop, how does Jesus appear? They ask him, are you the Christ? And Jesus proceeds to quote from the book of Daniel. And he says, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. That contrast cannot be missed on us. Those who know the Bible can pervert the truth, look for false witnesses to get their way, 
versus the Lord Jesus, who even at great cost, he told the truth. And say, we want to be on the side of truth. Now, before I go any further, because right at this point, you're thinking, you know, these scribal leaders, I mean, these guys who knew the Bible, I mean, what duplicity, I mean, what duplicity to be up there, you know, teaching the Bible and then going out and searching for false witnesses, a blatant violation of the ninth commandment. You know, look at these guys, what terrible, and then I asked myself, I'm up here preaching every week. They know Shaw's over there at Providence and he, you know, talks to the people about this stuff. And then if I plow through my life, which I sometimes do, as if I'm not a Christian at all, I'm bearing false witness against Jesus. I'm bearing false witness. I'm, I'm saying that I'm on his side and then I'm going and living my whole life and saying things that's against him. Say, I'm not the... I'm not innocent in this matter, but I'm a lot like these scribal leaders, aren't I? I say, I'm the fraud. I'm the one who needs help. I'm the one who will gossip against other people and give them flattery to be a man pleaser and exaggerate things. Say, it's my heart that's the problem. So maybe you're here today. Say, so this hits you in a new way to say, gosh, I do. I do a lot of that, talking bad about people, bringing them down to make everybody else think that I'm a little bit better and it's completely selfish, what hope do I have? So you got a great hope in Jesus, the only one who told the truth and nothing but the truth, no matter the cost. Friends, this Easter, it's great that we have a Savior. It's great that we have a Savior to cover our sins, right? Not that we have earned it in any way, but the Passion Week celebrates this. They, all of us have had a little duplicity in our hearts that we've all borne false witness, certainly against Jesus if you're a Christian, and certainly against other people. And yet there's wonderful news that God sent him forward to pay the penalty for us, and we can rest in that and be encouraged in that. And I hope, Christian, I hope you are. Maybe you're not a Christian today, Maybe, maybe just maybe doing a recall of the week and said, I've been, I've been nasty to others. I've played this game. So am I going to get through without that ever coming back to me? Say, well, maybe there's a chance to repent and to turn to Jesus. There is. Would you turn to him today and trust him and join the side of truth? So once again, God's people, we value the truth. We speak cautiously and accurately about others, knowing that when we tell lies to make ourselves look good, it only further exposes our need for God's grace and his kindness to us and the blood of a savior. Lastly, and we'll end positively as we have each week, I'll put commandment nine in the positive. God's people find the good in others. We find the good in others. I think you all know criticism comes a lot easier than building people up. Let's face it, you know, you sit, the more you get to know somebody, there's always stuff to critique. We're all fallen creatures. Say, I don't like this, I don't like this. They blew it there. Say, that's the easy part. What's hard and what's godly is to find the good, to build somebody up, to speak well of them, to not exaggerate their flaws. That's what God's people do. We find the good in others. Just like, thank goodness, most of the, the funerals I do are for believers, but you know, in the pastor books, they'll say, sometimes you'll do funerals for non-believers, and you're flipping through the pages, and what do they tell the pastor? Say, you find the good in a person. Find the good. It's a good Christian principle to find the good in others. Great biblical example of this, and I know I'll land the plane here in a minute. Um, John Mark, a man named John Mark, is on the preaching tour with Paul, St. Paul. 
And we don't know all the details, but John Mark uh, can't persevere. He turns back. He doesn't have much grit. Clearly, John Mark has, has some problems um, that Paul wasn't happy about. And Paul says, we're not taking that guy again, uh, just not joining, linking arms with him. But an older statesman, right, a man named Barnabas comes along, and Barnabas says, no, John Mark, you, you're going to come with me. And you just wonder, Barnabas was a smart man. He was friends with Paul. He clearly knew the flaws in this young man. He obviously had to know that he didn't persevere, that he let others down. And yet it seems that he found the good and linked arms with him in ministry to the glory of God. Because in all likelihood, that John Mark, as the years would go on, gave us a great gift in the gospel of Mark. And you wonder, right, playing the counterfactual game with a providential God might be dodgy, but playing the counterfactual game, say, had Barnabas not invested in John Mark, what a different story it would have been. What if we're a church family rather than slandering, but rather we could speak well of each other? And you remember when they taught you, when you were young, say, before you speak, is it true? Is it necessary? And is it kind? And we'd be a church family, right? We speak well of others, and truthfully about others when it's necessary in a kind way, speaking the truth in love. We're on the side of truth. We speak accurately of others, no matter the cost. And of course, may we be different in this area as we go forward. So I'll invite Jim and the team back up as I pray. Lord, we do think about this in our current state of affairs, where it can be very easy to think that bending the truth is the right thing to do, that we see it on the world stage, we see it in our politics, we read it in our journalism, we have it in exceptions, as some people would raise them against us, we have it in the universities, and it's so very easy to slide into saying, you know what, if I just didn't tell the truth here, it would be better for me. Help us to be those who stand confidently in the truth, which is ultimately in the person of Jesus, and Lord, help us to be those, may it be at the end of our years, what if a close friend could say, you know, I'd never heard that person speak negatively or harshly about another person. Say, what a testimony that would be. Lord, we're very good critics. We're very good at bearing false testimony to make ourselves look good, but it flings us back to your grace. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. And may our church and the way we conduct our affairs be different in how we find the good, how we build each other up, May this be an example and ultimately something we do to your glory. In Christ's name, amen.